week 16, wholehearted dwelling. Well, we've seen many things in Elisha's reign. I'm going to give you a recap of the whole 16 weeks in about one minute. Elisha took the double portion of Elijah's mantle. He went through a mocking from unbelievers and false prophets, if you remember that. He, he walked away from everything that he knew and went into an unknown area. That's a word for some of you. When you walk into known places, the first thing you go through, go through a lot of times is the mocking and the doubt. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> Elisha was only moved by the presence of God. He was not moved by the voice of people. We saw that he surrounded himself with people who sought God, and God was doing all these miracles through him. He was multiplying olive oil for profit. He was speaking pregnancy into a woman that couldn't get pregnant. And not only did she get pregnant, but years later, the boy that, that she gave birth to died, and through Elisha, God raised the boy from death to life, and we saw him deal with all kind of issues. The, the, the school of the prophets that was forming, they were going through a famine, and they got some stew, and the, the stew had some poison stuff in it, so it was purified. A miracle happened. We saw he took 20 loaves of bread and, and, and multiplied it to feed 100 people. He, we saw that he healed a man by the name of Naaman with leprosy, and it caused that man to believe in God. We saw that he was building the school of prophets, um, allowing axe heads to float and raise to the surface. We saw that he was causing enemies to go blind and, and guiding them uh, into defeat, and the people of God could win battles, and he didn't, just de he didn't defeat the blind army, but he served it, and, he, and, and they said, hey, we're not even going to touch Elisha after this. And we saw that he was showing grace and that he was staying secure, even though he was getting all these threats from the king surrounding him that they were trying to take him out. We saw that Elisha, uh, even knowing that a man named Hazael would kill the king, Elisha still served the king and even prophesied to Hazael that he was going to do it, hoping that he would change his mind, but we saw that he didn't. We saw that uh, there was a man named Jehu who was king over Israel, and that he uh, walked in the, the prophecy that Elijah spoke, and Elisha confirmed that he took out Jezebel and Ahab's descendants and, and all those things. And last week, we, we kind of got to this point where this dude named Joash was uh, hidden as a baby, hidden in the temple. He preserved the bloodline of David. Thank God, no matter what man tried to do, God's plan at this point is still intact. And it all began with a willing person called Elisha. Pretty awesome. Now, Joash, if you remember, he followed God, but at the very end, he did mess up on some things, and he allowed some pagan worship in the temple, and we're going to get into that tonight a little bit, but Elisha has served God. He has followed God. He has stayed in the presence of God. He started out as a rich man, but he gave up everything, and we have seen throughout his whole life, he has stayed true to serving the one true king. Amen? All of his obedience has made sure that even though everyone tried to mess up God's plans, God's plans are still intact for the people of God. And today we're going to see the last days of Elisha. So if you're in your Bibles tonight, if you're reading up top, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 13, and I want to start off with verses 1 through 3. Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, began to rule over Israel in the 23rd year of King Joash's reign in Judah. He reigned in Samaria for 17 years. But he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Don't you get tired of reading that in the Old Testament? 
It's like, oh, he was great. Oh, and then he did evil in the Lord's sight. He followed the example of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, continuing the sins that Jeroboam had led Israel to commit. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he allowed King Hazael, that name sound familiar? King Hazael of Aram and his son Benadad to defeat them repeatedly. Defeat them repeatedly. Now, if you remember, God made a promise to Jehu back in the day because Jehu was devoted to doing the will of God. Now, he, 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 he messed up some, on some things. You know, no one's perfect. But Jehu was committed to doing the will of God, and God made a covenant with him. He said, because you have been sold out to me, I am going to make sure that four generations of your descendants are going to sit in the throne of Israel. It was back in 2 Kings chapter 10. And this chapter is the beginning of that promise being fulfilled. His son, Jehoaz, is the first one, the first generation to take the throne of Israel. This man and his father alike, they did walk into some idolatry of Jeroboam. They were walking in sin. They were walking in what we defined last week as a lesser portion of what they were created to walk in. This is important to remember. The way we defined sin last week is not just that it's missing the mark, but that sin is settling for a lesser portion than what your identity was supposed to be. And when we settle for a lesser portion, then we tend to miss the mark. Does that make sense? So they were not walking as, as people that could give all, the, all God's glory. They were giving glory to other things. They were settling for a lesser portion. And the scripture says, because they were walking in a lesser portion, God allowed Hazael to defeat them. Not just once, but repeatedly. Remember, Hazael is the one who killed the king to take the throne. Okay? God allowed Hazael to defeat the people of God repeatedly. And I start that off to say this. The easiest way to open yourself up to defeat is to walk in a lesser portion. Because when you start to walk in a less than portion then you start to walk into things and you get defeated by things you were never intended for. You walk in a lesser portion and what God does is he allows a defeat that you should never have been through. It's not that God planned the defeat. I can't stand when people say God had a plan. Yes, he did, and then you screwed it up because you settled for lesser portion. And because you settle for lesser portion, you're losing battles that you should have never had to fight through. There's a natural and there's a spiritual element to this. Because when you settle for lesser portion in your life, when you walk with things that you were never meant to walk in, you can sever relationships. You can go through times where you don't uh, walk into relationship that you were supposed to walk through, whether that be in the business place, in church, in family, you name it. But on the other side of that, if we understand that God allows this, that means there were angels designed 
to ward off battles, and because you settled for lesser portion, he, let, he, he made known to his angels, don't fight, allow it. See, that's when we get quiet. We don't like that idea because God's our protector, right? But if we walk in a lesser portion, we invite things in that we were never designed to deal with. And what restoration is, is God saying, let me take all the stuff that you were never intended to walk in and get you to a new place. Restoration is not getting you back to where you were, because where you were is why you're in the predicament you're in. Restoration is let me take you to a new place so that you can understand your identity in a full portion manner. And when you walk in a full portion manner, when you walk in what you are intended to walk in, then you won't have to go through battles you were never intended for. And the battles that you're equipped to fight don't scare you. The battles that you're equipped and prepared to walk through will not shake you because you know who you are in your identity as a son or daughter of God Almighty. When you know who you are, what you face does not shake you. And I think that's one thing we should pay attention to when we settle for lesser portion in our life. Essentially what we've done is we have not had a wholehearted dwelling in God. We've had a half-hearted dwelling. We, we, we run to God when we need him and ignore God when we're doing good. And we wonder why when we're doing good, all of a sudden, all hope seems lost in a moment. Because you gave God yourself when you needed him, but you turned your back on him when you, everything seemed good. Every time it happened to Israel, they got in a good place and then they settled. They got in a good place and then they settled. What were they settling for? A lesser portion of what their identity truly was. They started giving glory to uh, Baal and Asherah poles and all this idolatry when God says, that is not you. And I can't bless what's not you. And sometimes the biggest lessons in life is for God to say, I'm going to allow you to fail. Because if you don't feel the failure you'll have no reason to change the way you live. That's a word for parents. Stop getting in the way of your child reaping the bad stuff they sowed. Because if you always protect them, they'll never have a reason not to sow the bad stuff. Right? We've got to be in this place where we, we understand the law of sowing and reaping is not just for good stuff. And the reason the people of God go back to him is because they've realized we have settled for less. And, so, and they were like, we don't know how to, get, get to go back to the more. So God would send a prophet and start directing things back. I think one of the biggest misses in the church is that the body of Christ has settled for a less than portion of what we are intended to be. And we don't know how to get back because we've thrown away the office of the prophet. And we don't like to listen to prophetic words unless they resonate with us and we reject the ones that are actually trying to point us back. And what we do in the church is we think 
the new is a physical thing. When the new is really getting restored to the place where the only thing we're seeking is the Father. Not seeking your ideals and not seeking your plans, but seeking the Father and letting all things flow from that relationship. He has severed any protection because of what they have done settling for lesser. But watch what happens in verse 4. Jehovah has, this is the same dude that was doing evil. He prayed for the Lord's help. People who don't know God start praying to God when they in need. And the Lord heard his prayer. For he could see how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. Jehoahaz was ungodly, he was doing evil, and, he, and this prayer wasn't going to have a lasting effect on Jehoahaz's life. Just letting you know, he doesn't like turn to God and, make, and become this amazing you, you know, uh, leader. He, he still stays in his way. And it kind of makes you mad because you're like, why would God hear that dude's prayers? Because I pray all the time, I believe in God, and I'm still waiting to see if my prayers are even working. You know you got, you got people like that in your life. You, you see all these breakthroughs and you're like, how in the heck are they getting here, right? How was that happening? How was it that Jehoahaz, an evil dude who's not following God, cries out in one moment and then God answers? It says God answered his prayer not because of Jehoahaz, but because he saw the oppression of his people. And that's a beautiful picture of the mercy of God. Because it doesn't matter where it comes from. He has so much mercy to say, I will answer that prayer because of what's going on. When he says pray for the Lord's help, that word actually means to be sick. So when he was praying, it wasn't just this, Lord, can you help us? He was literally at the end of his rope crying out in desperation. God, we need you. I don't know what to do. You ever had desperate prayer? I mean, desperation. And the Lord answered it because of how his people were hurting. God's mercy and care for his people outweighs his judgment on the one who's crying out that may not be seeking him. The Lord may not be pleased with you, but he still hears it. Now, some of you, I see it in your faces. You're like, this is kind of slow. Why are you saying this? This is why I'm saying it. God answered the prayers of an unrighteous dude who did not follow him. Throw up James 5.16. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so you're healed. And the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. God heard the prayer of an unrighteous man because of the hurting of the people. But we're told in James, the righteous man, not when he prays sometimes, but the righteous man, when you pray, it produces. And the biggest settling in the church is that no one knows how to pray from a righteous portion. Most of our prayers are, I, I, I need 
this, God, and I need that, and this is horrible. That was high-pitched. But if we understand our role as righteous people, then no matter what comes out of my mouth, if I am a child of God, it will produce. And if it will produce, maybe I should make prayer as part of my lifestyle instead of a, instead of a lifeline. And notice what it says before. the. It says, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other that you may be healed. Repentance and confession are two different things. Repentance is not come up to the altar and tell God how bad you are so that you can feel horrible in his presence. That's not repentance. That's confession. I'm supposed to confess my sin to a brother so the brother can help me in my healing. And while I'm confessing my sin to a brother, I need to go through a time of repentance. What's repentance? It means change the way you think, and changing the way you think will cause you to turn and walk in the opposite direction of what you were walking in. So I'm confessing my sins and getting it out to my brother so that it is a partnership and I've got to get my thinking in line with full portion thinking. Is this making sense? Less than portion thinking is my prayers won't do a thing. Full portion is you realize, wait a minute, if I'm a son of God, if I'm a daughter of God, if he is the king of kings, capital K, little k, then my words carry weight not because of my track record, but because of who I am. Can I just give you something good? It don't matter what you've done. If your identity is in him, how bad you are does not outweigh who you are. And what your thinking has become is not let me get proven to God by not sinning for a few weeks. It's I'm going to change the way I view myself and I'm going to change the way I view the mistake. I'm going to change the way I view the relationship. And I'm going to start walking in what I'm supposed to walk in. I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. I will command heaven to earth. I will be in agreement with what the Father wants. And nothing is going to get me off track. And when I mess up, I will not let it hinder my belief in the power of my prayer. I will simply confess to my brother so that I'm healed as I'm walking in my identity. Hmm. Look at verses 5 through 9. So the Lord provided someone to rescue the Israelites from the tyranny of the Arameans. Then Israel lived in safety again as they had in their former days. But they continued to sin. Following the evil example of Jeroboam, they also allowed the Asherah pole in Samaria to remain standing. And finally, Jehoahaz's army was reduced to 50 charioteers, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. The king of Aram had killed the others, trampling them like dust under his feet. Like what? Dust under his feet. Remember that. 
The rest of the events in Jehoaz's reign, everything he did and the extent of his power are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Israel. When Jehoahaz died, he was buried in Samaria, and then his son Jehoaz became the next king. Israel slipped up. God sent someone, just like in Judges. Let me just tell you, God will allow a people to be humbled if, they, if it would help them to learn to cry out for him. I do not believe that anything going on in America is God's plan. I do believe it's time that God says, I'm going to allow America to be humbled. God did not come up with a disease called COVID. God does not embrace the possibility of recessions and all that kind of thing. He certainly does not embrace gas at $4 an hour. A gallon. See, I'm just... I'm, See, I'm just outside of time. I'm focused on God. $4 a gallon. Well, it might be $4 an hour. You never know. That's not God. But God says, America, you've learned to depend on your hand. Church, you've learned to depend on your hand. You know, I read something this week that startled me. There's 14 growth church models in the United States of America. And all of them are basically the same thing. Raise about $80,000, launch big to make sure you have about 500 people in your first service and you'll grow. And it works every time. It does. There's many churches around here that have done it. And as the person said that statistic, this is what they followed up with. But no one embraces the Acts 2 model of pray and grow the church slowly. We embrace a business model to grow the house and we're not teaching people how to walk in full portion. We want people to fill the seats that will settle for less than portion because they're deceived by what they see. I don't want to lead a house that is deceived by what we see. I want everything we do to flow out of who we are. And if that takes 10 years longer to build the house, it'll take 10 years longer to build the house. And build the house could mean larger congregation, or it could just mean 150 generals that I got to spend the rest of my life building up. I'm okay with either or. I'm not trying to fill up seats. I'm trying to get people to walk in their fullest portion. And those people to understand that even though I'm the pastor, sometimes I walk in less than portion. And I'm not above you, so you are loyal to me as much as I'm loyal to you. See, we got to get out of this idea that it's above and beneath. The functions are different, but we're all on the same plane here. Okay? Hmm, where am I going with this? God allowed the people to be humbled. And notice that even though God sent a deliverer, they turned to their ways after their deliverance. You know what half-hearted dwelling is? It's when you cry out to God only when you need him. Because we love, think about half-hearted repentance. Repentance is what? Change the way you what? Think. We love to adopt new ways of thinking that will rescue us in a moment. But we fail to adopt those new ways of thinking as a part of a new life. Let me give you some examples. I do it all the time. Every year, I try to adopt a new way of thinking in my nutrition. 
I get successful for a while, eventually, the new way of thinking disappears. I love the new way of thinking when I started seeing the results, but I didn't adopt it as a new way of life permanently. I adopted it as just a new way of thinking for what I want, and then when I get it, I throw out the way of thinking, and I go back to the place of deliverance from the weight, right? It's the same thing with everything. The reason we fall all the time, it, it, it's not, there's no such thing as falling into sin. Sin is planned. Because every sin starts in your mind. You think about it, you plot it, you strategize it, and then you do it. It's not mistakes. It's not a fall. Sin would stop if you got it right here in your mind. Okay? That's, is that too much? Okay. The reason we go back to places of meaning deliverance, because we have a breakthrough in the sin, the less than portion settling, the, 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 the taking too much alcohol or, or, or the gossip or whatever it is, we, we settle for a less than portion. Of, th- think about gossip. Why is it sin? It's a less than portion of what? Let every word that come out of your mouth be edifying to the body. If it's not edifying, you settle for a less than portion. Is this making sense? Yeah. Right? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, release, when you forgive someone, you're released of it. But if you don't, you're bound by it. So why is unforgiveness a sin? You've settled for a less than portion of your identity. Right? So why do we go back to this place where we have to get re-delivered of the same thing over and over? Because you get free, but you don't change the way you think for the, as a, adopting a new nature. You go back to settling for your less than. Because it's not wholehearted, it's half-hearted. It's let me get it when I need it, and then when I got it, I'll go back to how I was. This is what the people are going through. Is this okay? Okay. Where am I at? We love to adopt this half-hearted repentance, but if we do not embrace a wholehearted repentance, there will be no lasting change in the church. The church is still going to be mocked, having no power, as hypocritical, and as an organization that just exists so we can get a tax-exempt card. The church says we want new wine, we want new, but we've got to adopt a wholehearted repentance in order to receive the new. What is wholehearted repentance? I'm going to change the way I think about everything, even if it offends what I have adopted as a good way of thinking. In Joel chapter 2, there's this whole chapter called A Call to Repentance. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. What I'm going to read is the first two verses after the entire chapter about repentance. Joel 2, 18 through 19. So you repent. Then the Lord will pity his people and jealousy guard the honor of his land. And then the Lord will reply, look, I am sending you grain and what? New wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy your needs. You will no longer be an object of mockery among the surrounding nations. The fruit of wholehearted repentance is you will receive new wine and the provision to meet all of your needs. Because when you're truly repenting, 
what's happening is that you're putting yourself in the right alignment for your purpose and destiny. Because when you're changing the way you think submitted to God's thinking, it's no longer about how can I attain my goals. It's about how can I align myself with what God saw for my life. Because a lot of times when you're at this place and you're trying to attain your goals, maybe the reason you're not attaining them is because you're walking in a false form of what you're actually supposed to be walking in. And the reason you don't get it is because you weren't designed to get it. So God, am I going to keep walking in what I'm not designed for or am I going to wholeheartedly change the way I think and realign with everything I do with, how does it give glory to the Father? When I started understanding that is when things started increasing in my life. And when I forget it, immediate decrease. We have got to get to a place where we are all in with God. I don't want to just change the way I think to grow a church. I don't want to just change the way I think to get out of debt. I want to change the way I think so I can be properly aligned. And Because when I am properly aligned, my purpose and my destiny will come to fruition. Because when I'm in proper alignment, my righteous prayers will produce. Dang. These people, y'all got weak clap tonight. These people, after deliverance and half-hearted repentance, what are we told? They're, they were at a good place, and then they were trampled over like what? Dust. Meaning they're weak and without, when they should be strong with more than enough. That's why the Bible says the church should be the lender and not the borrower. Because when we're properly aligned, properly aligned, we should have more than enough. But because we don't get properly aligned, we're begging people to give 45 times a year. You ever been to those churches that they preach on tithe, like during tax season? As if no one gets it, right? That's pretty bad because we're doing dream big during tax season. <laughs> but, but that's what goes on. Everyone has settled for your own thinking. Repentance is... I've got to realize that my thinking is not always in the mentality of my father. And if my thinking is not in the mentality of my father, then I've settled for a less than portion of my sonship, of my sonship, including daughters in that. Because everything we do and say should be a mirror image of the father. Can I just say this? We got something wrong. We always say mirror image of Jesus. Jesus was the image of the Father and made it possible for us to be that image as well. It's not just an image of Jesus. It's an image of Jesus and the Father because there is no difference. You see, we've made the Father bad God old, good God new. Well, if God never changes, then why do we have two ideas of him? God didn't change, Adam did. God's always been. The Father has always been. He is gracious even when he killed off things in the Old Testament. 
That's hard to understand. But there was not the word becoming flesh to redeem us so that we didn't have to pay a price for all of our slip-ups into I need more deliverance. But there were people who followed the word of God and went to heaven without Jesus because Jesus was the word. And for us, we accepted him when the word became flesh. Elijah went to heaven. He didn't accept Jesus as his savior. Let's change the way we think for a minute. Well, maybe he did, but he did it because he abided in the word. Obedience to the word, who was Jesus before we knew Jesus. <laughs> I love Jesus, not according to your actions, because Jesus is the word, and the word ain't nowhere in your life. That's why many will proclaim his name, and he will say to them, I never knew you. Well, how does he know you? Because you exhibit the word that is him. That is him. Mm -hmm. See, we got to change the way we think. And it offends the spirit a little bit sometimes. But that's what renewing it, it, it's hard. But if we can grasp these concepts, we'll start to understand who we are in him, in the word. He's a loving father. He gave us his son. But Jesus was in Genesis chapter 1 because God said, When the father, this, this isn't in my notes, but when the father said, that was Jesus and the father in agreement. And before anything was created, it says his spirit hovered over the waters. So all three were in Genesis chapter one. And now all three are in. We're redeemed. We have the Holy Spirit and the presence of God never leaves us. But if we don't change the way we think, we think, I need to go to church to get in the presence. That's half-hearted repentance. Why? Because you're still thinking that his presence is not attainable all the time. We should be walking in his presence. Not, I want to get to church to get in the presence. I believe the next revival has nothing to do with creating great presence. I believe the next revival is getting people to understand that the presence should be everywhere we go. Can you imagine what would happen if the people who believed in God in the White House knew, if they're already, knew that they carried the presence into the Oval Office? We got to start changing the way we think. It's not, I will get them to church. It's, I'm going to get them in presence so they have no choice but to submit to the power of God. How can I get them in presence? You realign your thinking and start living a life mirror imaging the Father. Is this okay? Yeah. All right. Look at 13, 10 through 13. Jehoahaz, or Jehoahaz, son of Jehoahaz, a lot of Jehoahaz, began to rule over Israel in the 37th year of King Joash's reign in Judah. Now remember, this is Jehu's second generation. 
He reigned in Samaria 16 years, but he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to turn from the sins that Jeroboam, son of Naboth, had led Israel to commit. The rest of the events in Jehoash's reign and everything he did, including the extent of his power and his war with King Amaziah of Judah, are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Israel. When Jehoash died, he was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then his son Jeroboam II became the next king. So we're seeing the four generations of Jehu sitting on the throne. And actually, the restoration of Israel actually doesn't even happen until it's the reign of the grandson of Jeroboam II. During the reign of Jehoahaz, there's actually a civil war going on between Judah and Israel. And I want to say that because Israel didn't start prospering until generations later. Just because God didn't get his way with one generation don't mean it ain't going to happen in the next. But sometimes people have to be removed so that God can get his way. Kind of like how Moses went on a walk with God, didn't come back, and Joshua took the people into the promised land three days after what took Moses a lot of years. Thinking had to be changed. Position had to be embraced. That's what the series Belonging is going to be about, understanding that you belong in the courts of heaven now, not when you die. Just a little nugget. God will have his way, but he does it through ones he created to rule mankind. And if mankind messes up, he's going to find someone to say, yes, God. Much like Jesus becoming flesh to redeem us. Now we see all this. And we're told all this stuff about what's happening during the reign of Jehoahash. There's a civil war, all kind of things. And then the passage points back to what's going on with Elisha. So there's civil war, there's unrest, there's evil, there's all this stuff. And look what happens in verse 14. When Elisha was in his last illness, King Jehoash of Israel visited him and wept over him. Now this was a man that was doing evil and not worshiping God. He wept over Elisha. He said, my father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. He cried. Now, the question I ask is, why did this king, who did so much evil, why was he there weeping over the prophet Elisha and calling him father? Sin and evil definitely defined his reign. But we do know that he had some respect for God in Elisha. Some versions actually call him a false worshiper, meaning that it wasn't necessarily that he wasn't worshiping God, it's he was deceived into thinking he was. See, he really, <laughs> he really wasn't depending on God. He was actually just depending on the man that God had sent. And many people will proclaim belief, but words are meaningless without an action. You know, James 2.17 says faith without works is what? Dead? You know what 1 John 3.18 says? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. You can talk all day, it don't matter. Let's see what you're doing with it. And then this is perhaps a strong one, which is what this king is going through, James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not only hearers, because when you only hear, you deceive yourself. This king was deceived into thinking he had a relationship with God because of the times he listened to the word that came through the prophet, Elisha. And because he had no relationship with God, he was deceiving, deceiving himself because all he did was hear. 
Hashtag the church. What has the church been built on? Come hear a word. And you wouldn't know they were a Christian from a witch based off of how they lived their life. But because they're a member of a church and they hear a good sermon every week, if they're not doing it, they're deceived into thinking they're actually with him. And that's why this church don't grow quick. Because when you hear stuff like that, well, that's not what I believe. Well, you're deceived, sweetheart. I just sound old. <laughs> and notice what the king says. He's weeping over Elisha, and he says, My father, I see the chariots and the chariots of Israel. When Elijah left, these are the exact words that Elisha was saying to Elijah. But the difference is that Elisha, when he said it in 2 Kings 2, he was seeing the true strength of Israel. He was seeing that the strength of the people was in God. Not, not the chariots of the armies, but the chariots of fire that came and took Elijah. When he saw them, he, that was the strength of God. But King Jehoash, he wasn't inspired. He wasn't encouraged. He's scared to death. Because all he has is a relationship with what he's heard through this man. And when the man's dying, he is scared that the strength of Israel is about to go with Elisha. We are not meant to be in relationship with anything other than God when it comes to what we seek and how we go about it. And when we start to have a relationship as false worshipers, when we start to have just a relationship with what we hear instead of doing it, what happens is we put all of our strength in circumstances, and then when the circumstance fails us, we actually change our perception of God. We're not supposed to have a relationship with, with just hearing. We're supposed to have a relationship with God. Father, what do you want of me? And then do it. And when you don't have a relationship in that seeking, all of a sudden, your strength is found in circumstances and you weigh outcomes with a worldly view that should be changing in a kingdom view because you've abided in the Father. So when something happens... You get moved, and you get anxiety, and you get depressed, and you get hurt, and you get let down. It's a sign that you have not embraced wholehearted changing the way you think because depression is not something, this is going to make some of you mad, but get over it. It's not clinical. It's you have chosen to respond to something in a non-full portion sort of way. Well, this is just who I am. No, it's not. Don't settle for the less than. Well, I just have anxiety. No, you don't. Stop embracing crap that wasn't in your design. Yeah. And I say that because I love each and every one of you. I, I, I've gone through it. Well, this is just something that, that's a part of me. You know when it left? When I realized it wasn't a part of me. 
We limit God's provision and protection because we're not surrounding ourselves in identity with him. We're not wholeheartedly dwelling in all that he is. We're settling for so much less. I'm going to read to you Psalm 91, verses 1 through 16. It says, those who live in the shelter of the Most High, or another way to say that is those who dwell in him, they'll find rest in his shadow. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God. I trust him. He will rescue you from every. You know what every every means? It means every. Every trap. He will protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. You want to know how to deflect anxiety? My armor is my hope. How do you deflect a dart from the enemy? My armor is that I believe in his promises. And when it seems like it's not working, I will not believe in the reality. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrows that fly in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes. See how the wicked are punished. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the most high your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home. Why? He will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You'll trample upon lions and cobras. You'll crush fierce lions, serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them, honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. All great stuff, but it's based off of one thing. Those are for the ones who dwell. Well, why did I have this happen to me? Because you're not dwelling. Well, that well, that's mean, Kyle, because you're pointing out, like, I'm not, if you're saying that because I became a victim to this, I'm not dwelling, yes, and that should help you to start dwelling. Can I just throw this out here? There's parts of all of us that are not dwelling. When you start to understand that, you you won't be so hurt by conviction. You embrace it as, oh, Lord, show me how to dwell more. What's the new wineskin? Being formed to contain more. How do we contain more? Dwelling. How will the church get more? Learn how to dwell. This king is mourning, he's crying, he's panicking. But you know what Elisha's doing? He's dwelling. And then he starts talking. This is okay. Okay, I'm gonna keep going. Okay. Wipe the sweat off my bald head. Verse 15. Elisha told him, Get a bow, get some arrows. The king did as he was told, about time. Elisha told him, put your hand on the bow. Elisha laid his, his own hands on the king's hand. 
Then he commanded, open that eastern window. What window? Eastern. And he opened it, and then he said, shoot. So he shot an arrow. Elijah proclaimed, this is the Lord's arrow, an arrow of victory over Aram. For you will completely conquer the Arameans at Aphek. Elisha was not moved by what the king said. He was comforted in the presence of God. You know, this king is freaking out. Like we're, man, We've already been, beat, been beaten repeatedly, and now you're leaving, and the strength of Israel is gone. We're go- Elisha was so secure that even in his last breaths, all he cared about was giving glory to God and being faithful in his assignment, even though being faithful in his assignment in that moment did not suit his flesh. Sometimes you got to be faithful in your assignment even when it doesn't seem like it's for you. A lot of times we don't like to be faithful in our assignment because we think, how does this benefit me? This wasn't going to benefit Elijah on the earth. This was for the king. And he's not being shaken going, oh, man, I know I'm going, I'm hurt. No, he was, he was being faithful. We need to be a people of God that are dwelling in such a degree of obedience that no matter what the circumstances look like, we're that faithful. Because the American church, we shut down for disease. You know what the Ukrainian church does? They start singing in subways. The the, the American church freaks out about what we can't pay this and what we can't pay that. You know what the church in China does? They have to hide because it's illegal. And the people that are hiding, having church anyways, even though it can mean that they die, people are being raised from the dead. And they don't even have full copies of the Bible. But thank God we have pastors who have theology degrees. If, if I remember correctly, the, the, the 12 apostles had no such degree. And they walked in a real authority, not an authority that makes people go, just be hearers of my knowledge. And they hear, and they're deceived. Where do you dwell? Is this too much? Where do you dwell? Hmm. King Jehoahaz has his concern about the strength, and then Elisha says, Aren't you get that bow and get an arrow and shoot it in the east? You see, there was an ancient custom back in the day. When you would go into a battle, you would shoot one arrow into the country that you intended to invade. And you know where the city of Aphek was? It was east of their location. So Elisha said, This is God's arrow and you will conquer the Arameans. He said, shoot the arrow to declare your intent to win the battle. In other words, he says, I'm leaving, but God's deliverance is still available, and all you need to do is put to action. What was the action? Shoot the arrow. All you need to do is walk in obedience, and God will deliver you even though I'm going away. God's not leaving you, but your action has to match that belief. And many times we pray for deliverance, but we don't shoot an arrow. We don't look toward the place where we're destined to go. Instead, we get pushed back by the onslaught of chariots, if you will. We want to be delivered from this thing, but we ignore the triggers that cause it. We want to be delivered from religion, but we won't sacrifice our ways. 
We want to be free, but we won't give up what's precious. We want unity, but we focus on what divides instead of shooting an arrow of an embrace. Let me say that one again. We want unity, but we focus more of what divides us than shooting an arrow into the direction of embracing a brother and embracing a sister. Shoot the arrow. We want protection, we want breakthrough, but we don't take action. Wholehearted dwelling is obedience to an action we take. An army's coming. Elisha says, get your weapon and shoot. Then look at what happens in verse 18, 19. Now pick up the other arrows, strike them against the ground. So the king picked them up, struck the ground three times, but the man of God, Elisha, was angry with him. You should have struck the ground five or six times, he exclaimed. Then you would have beaten Aram until it was entirely destroyed. Now you only get three victories. Now, Elisha just made a connection with shooting an arrow for victory, that God's hand was on the direction the arrow was going to shoot, and it showed that the arrows represent God's deliverance. So he shoots one through the east window, then he shot three to the ground. The word strikes means he shot the arrow three times to the ground, which means four total, and Elisha's complaining because he didn't do five or six. What does, that, what does that mean? He had at least two more arrows. There were more than just four he could have shot. And Elisha said, you should have picked up the others. Why? Because you didn't give wholehearted obedience. You gave some of what you had. You didn't give all of what you had. He used a few and then saved some from, from himself. And how many of us do that when God says, give me this, we give God some and then keep some from ourselves, and then we complain about limited victories in times of bondage? You want to know why you have limited victories? You want to know why you're in times of bondage? Because you gave God some of your arrows and not all of them. Think about shooting arrows. You got to put forth effort. You got to aim it. That's more than just, I'm praying God will do it. you got to do something with the promise that he will. The aim was instructed by a prophet. Shooting the arrows had to be repeated. And we love to put forth effort where we want, and then we decide the time. But wholehearted dwelling says, God, I don't care how many times it takes and how much effort it takes. I will be obedient until what you have promised me comes to fruition. And we love to shoot arrows based off of our strategy rather than God's direction. Is this getting this? Let me, let, me, let me break it down even more for you. God says shoot the arrow of sacrificial worship. And we teach people worship how you feel comfortable. If you're comfortable in here, that's not sacrifice. Well, I've been, I just, this is how I worship. No, that's how you believe a proper offering of worship looks. God says to tithe. But we say, well, I can't because I don't have enough. That's shooting some arrows and not all of them. 
Don't come to me asking about financial advice when you've, when you've got cursed ground because you don't lift the curse with a tithe. Can you help me out? Yeah, tithe. God says to pray. But half the time in Bible study, we say, can someone pray? And this is what happened. Oh, but you know your identity in Christ. You, you talk to God all the time. if I'm making enemies or if it's getting God says to forgive and we say well I'm not ready well he didn't ask if you were he just told you to that's only giving him some of the arrows well I've got the arrow ready God but I'm not going to shoot it in the eastern window until I'm ready okay well while you're waiting to shoot you're not conquering anything you're not taking anything back you're not walking out of the bondage. We love to give God most, and he just wants everything. It's the same thing Peter did. God said, Peter, you know, leave your boat. You've been fishing for a while, but now why don't you become a fisher of men? Three years later, Jesus dies. Peter goes fishing. Why did he have a boat to go back to? You know what Elisha did when he was called to go with Elijah? He sold everything and everything he couldn't sell, he burned up. Because he said, I'm not going to walk into this new season holding on to the old one. I'm, I'm taking all my arrows and going in this direction with Elijah. I'm not going to let the fear of this not being the right thing cause me to hold on to that. And that's what we do. We hold on to yesterday. We hold on to the backup plan just in case following God does not work out. Can I just tell you about your alignment with God? If you did it out of wholeheartedly following God, even if you heard him wrong, do you really think he's going to allow you to fail knowing you were just trying to seek him? He says, you know what? You love me, and even though you totally missed it, I'm going to redeem the whole flipping thing. All in. Dwell in it. In the last few verses. Elisha died and was buried. Groups of Moabite raiders used to invade the land each spring. And once, when some Israelites were burying a man, they spied, they spied a band of these raiders they threw the corpse into the tomb of Elisha, but as soon as the body touched Elisha's bones, the dead man revived and jumped to his feet. That was a miracle. But let me just, before I, I, I read the last three verses, let me just say this. This is what the church gets wrong. That was a miracle for that time for a purpose for those people. What the church does wrong is we make the miracle of falling onto Elisha's corpse, a religion, and we come up with crap theology like grave soaking. Y'all ever heard of that? Oh, yeah, it's a thing. There's, there's Christians in places that believe if you go get on the graves of the great prophets or the, the Billy Grahams or that, that you'll soak up their anointing because they, they took a one-time miracle and made it a system. See, that's what religion does. 
Religion takes a manifestation of God and wants to recreate it through a system, and they'll tell you, we've been trying to do this for 50 years, and we'll have faith until it happens, and God's like, I never wanted it to happen again. That was a one-timer. That's what happens with revivals. You know why they stop? We try to get in a system to recreate. God doesn't want to maintain anything. He wants to move forward through the east window. I hope this is helping someone. Last three verses. King Hazael of Aram had oppressed Israel during the entire reign of King Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious and merciful to the people of Israel. And they were not totally destroyed. God pitied them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to this day, he still has not completely destroyed them or banished them from his presence. Isn't that good? But no matter how much you don't seek me, I'm not going to ban you from me. King Hazael of Aram died. His son Benadad became the next king. And then Jehoahaz, or son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from Benadad, son of Hazael, the towns that had been taken from his father. Jehoash defeated Benadab on three occasions, and he recovered the Israelite, Israelite towns. Why did he defeat them three times? He shot three arrows. Imagine what would have happened if he had shot all of them. And that's what I want to leave you with tonight on this whole idea of wholehearted dwelling. We always ask God the questions of why didn't you come through or why didn't you do this for me or God, why did this happen? Maybe we need to start asking the questions, did I shoot all my arrows? Did I give God everything or did I just give him a halfway kind of dwelling walk? Have I really understood who I am or am I still in this old mindset that I have to earn God? Am I still in this mindset that God is distant? We call God omnipresent, yet we make him so far away. We call, we call God all-knowing, yet we're embarrassed to go to him about our stuff. Church, if we're going to move forward, if we're going to see the move of God that I believe he has for this house, not just for this house, but through the house, the people of this area, we've got to embrace this whole-hearted dwelling. God, change the way I think. Help me surrender anything that I have not surrendered. God, I don't want to be halfway in. I want to give you all the arrows. I'm, be I'm believing God for a victory in this area. I'm believing God for your promises in that area. And I'm not going to hold a backup plan. I'm going to start walking right into it. Because I trust in you, Lord. Because you, you, God tells me, if I dwell in him, he protects me. And he fulfills his promises. So if you're not walking in that promise, it's not because God's not doing it. It's because we're not wholehearted. So I say, as we go into the rest of this year and the rest of our lives, God, you don't get a few things, you don't get a few hours, you don't get a few minutes, you get all of me. You get all of my thinking, you get my job, you get my family. You get my wants, you get my desires. You get my bitterness, you get my, my everything. You get, you get everything, God. 
And if we will start to walk in that, I guarantee you we will see the blessings of heaven poured out so much that it will not be able to be contained. And the word of that testimony is going to cause people to run to the body of Christ, not because of a good show we put on, but because of the light exuding from the people of God. Wholehearted obedience, wholehearted dwelling. Amen? Let's stand. Can we give God some praise tonight?